When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, when you conflate truth and faith, and then the goal then becomes knowledge, and we know knowledge is power, and we know power corrupts. There should becomes this sort of cascading uh, place where we can see where the institutions have gotten us today, um, and I think that's I think that's dangerous. Your mind be still. You have your mother's eyes, your father's eyes. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. I'm not not gonna do it. <laughs> you did it. I did. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a new episode. It's a new series. It's 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 all new. <laughs> it's just new stuff coming at you. Well, it's been a couple of years. We're, I think we're due, right? We had to do a series. We had to redeem yeah. ourselves. Part of this is redemption. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't do, but don't, but do, but probably don't go back and listen to our first Tim Mackey episode. Well, this is, this is Jared Bias. I know. I'm just saying. Oh, oh, because, he, <laughs> because he's my, yeah. So we're, yeah. Doing, we're doing another series on the Bible. We kind of kicked this podcast off saying... Well, if you're deconstructing, obviously we got to talk about the Bible yeah. and all the weird things about it. So um, we pulled in a guest that has been long overdue. Oh, show. And what a perfect time to talk about the Bible because um, our, one of our favorite podcasts is the Bible for normal people. Yeah. And right before the Bible for normal people launched, we didn't even know it was coming. We had the illustrious, the handsome the debonair Dr. Peter Enns. Yeah, not to mention hilarious, hilarious. Dr. Peter Enns. Hilarious. I, I, would, I would wager to bet he's the funniest Bible scholar out there. Apparently. I think you're right. Yeah. That dry sense of humor, man. <laughs> so good. Most Bible scholars, not so funny. But um, his better half on the podcast. Also handsome. Also handsome. Yeah. Very, very kind. Yeah. And wise. And very smart is Jared freaking Baez. Yeah. This guy's kind of come out like a shot, and everybody loves him now, and we don't know why we're still listening to Pete, to be honest. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know why we're still listening to Pete, because Pete clearly wrote uh, Jared's bio on their website. Oh, absolutely. Read it real quick. <laughs> Jared has been my friend ever since I found him along the side of a road in a basket and took him in, fed him, and clothed him. <laughs> Here's a little bit more about Jared. Awesome, awesome point number one. He's awesome. Awesome point two. He wrote Genesis for normal people with me. Awesome point three. He's like half my age, but way more mature than I am. <laughs> awesome point four. He is seriously entrepreneurial, out of the box, visionary kind of thinker about the present and future of Christian faith. And awesome point number five. He's been writing weekly on the blog on all sorts of awesome topics, including, and then he goes into all, all sorts of stuff. Um, and uh, do, 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 do. yeah, that's pretty much it. And so, you know, yeah. so, so Jared... Um, has got a, you're going to hear his story on here, so I don't want to rehash it before you hear it from him. But yeah, he's a perfect fit for our podcast. 
Uh, you guys are really, really going to love this episode. If you haven't checked out the Bible for Normal People, or if you haven't read some of Pete N's stuff, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I didn't think about this till after the fact, but uh, the, the two guests that we have coming up, because it's going to be a two-parter uh, for our Bible series over the course of November, both of them happen to be co-hosts of two of what we feel like are um, two of the best Bible resources out there in podcast form. And so this week, uh, we talked to Jared Bias, uh, and we, we focus a little bit on the New Testament, but we're kind of, you know, just talking about the Bible in general and how do you... How do you really absorb um, and, and gain an understanding, if you can even do that, mm-hmm. of this ancient document filled yeah. with all sorts of different types of writing written over thousands of years? It's a struggle. It is. But it's a fun struggle. So fun. And Jared is a wise guide and a good friend, and um, we just really love this conversation. So with that, uh, thanks to everybody for supporting us on Patreon. Yeah. You know who you are. You are loved. You are known. <laughs> and... Um, for everybody else, you know, the Bible is a big part of deconstruction, so let's have some fun and engage it with our friend Jared. Freaking, Freaking. bias. Bias. Jared Baez, this has been a long time coming. John and I are super excited. This is uh, this is quite a quite an opportunity we have here. And man, we just want to start by thanking you and, and welcoming you to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Man, thanks for hanging with us tonight. Hey, well, thank you guys very much. The uh, the pleasure is all mine. It's been uh, it's been fun to uh, go on this podcasting journey alongside you guys. Awesome, absolutely, and and we're huge fans of of the podcast that you do uh, with Pete Ends. We we were lucky enough to have Pete on, I think, probably about a year ago. Yeah, that sounds about right. For the beginning of this year, maybe it was. I honestly don't remember anything anymore. <laughs> Time is relative; it's fine. So, um, thank you so so much for being on the show. Uh, one of the things that we like to do uh, with with first time guests is just start off with a little bit of background history. Um, you have a really interesting journey yourself. Um, my understanding is you were born and raised in Texas. So talk a little bit about your upbringing. Um, you know, how were you raised? And, uh, and talk a little bit about the, the journey that you, that you took. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I grew up in Amarillo, Texas. And um, my, it, I always joke because my, my mother is a charismatic Native American. And my dad was a, a Southern Baptist Texan. Um, so definitely grew up with cowboys and Indians and uh, <laughs> oh very oh wildly different religious backgrounds as well. So they compromised and it was interesting. They said, basically, we'll raise you. We're going to raise our kids Southern Baptist when they're young because they're really good at, quote, the basics. That, that was a phrase that was used a lot. They're good at the basics, meaning they taught the Bible. Um, but then you would graduate into more of a charismatic experience as as I got older. So we eventually, we kind of followed that trajectory, went to a Southern Baptist church until I was about 10, and then went to a, a, a non-denominational charismatic church and lots of speaking in tongues. And my grandmother's an itinerant uh, sort of Native American preacher. So she, she used to travel around in a van and preach and do ministry and help uh, a lot of single women and other things. And uh, yeah, so then when I got into high school, I realized I loved... Um, I loved academics. I loved reading. I loved um, 
theology. I love philosophy. And so I started going to a Presbyterian church by myself. Uh, I felt a little more at home there. They were a little more heady, and I appreciated that. And yeah, so I did that and then went to Liberty University and studied philosophy and then went to Westminster, which was really where I wanted to go since I was a kid. Some people wanted to be, uh, you know, they want to be firemen or doctors. I wanted to go to Westminster since I was 13, 14 and get a PhD in presuppositional apologetics. Yeah, that was my, yeah, that was my dream, uh, as it is, as, as it is for many young men in America. And yeah, so I went to Westminster and I, so I went there to study theology and presuppositional apologetics, which is, you know, defense of the faith. And it was very, it was not to be overly spiritual uh, or overly dramatic, but my first semester, I just thought, oh, these faculty members are kind of jerks. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was basically the, for me, I just said, I, I just don't see this. If this is what it means to be a Christian, if this is the fruit that it bears, I'm not sure. Like, I like being smart and being right and being in control of everything, but I'm not sure I really want to be an asshole. So, um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So it basically, but fortunately for me, I fell into the arms of the biblical studies department who just in their life, they were very gracious and they were interested in justice and they were very passionate people, uh, and really connected with, with us as human beings and not just as students. And, um, so I just ended up falling in love with the the Bible and the text and, really is the professors who made that come alive. And one of those was, was Pete Enns and a whole host of other great folks. And yeah, so during that time, I was also a, a pastor of a, of a mega church up here near Philadelphia. So it had about three or 4,000 members and I was one of five on the, on the teaching staff there. So um, yeah, and, it, and Pete and I kind of went through our journeys together, you know, f- oh, me um, getting resigned from the church that I was a pastor of and Pete getting resigned from Westminster. And so we connected over that and, and kind of went along that journey together and stayed in touch while I was, I was teaching philosophy at a university. And, um, we wrote Genesis for normal people together and, um, yeah. And the rest is history. Oh, that's crazy. So was there a particular moment and, you know, as you look back, uh, on your journey or, or was it more of a gradual evolution? Obviously there there's, um, you know, there was some questioning or, you know, um, you know, when you talked about going to the, uh, um, Presbyterian church, you know, by yourself. So obviously there was a curiosity there, but was there a specific moment that you can recall where, um, you, you really felt the need to kind of shed that fundamentalist upbringing and, um, and, and look at maybe the Bible in a different way? Well, it, you know, each leg of the journey, I think had me at a different, um, on a different frontier. So being, you know, being at Liberty, I was a philosophy major and I was a Presbyterian. So it had two strikes against me, so to speak. <laughs> right. And so I, was, I always felt like a little bit of an outsider looking in. And then at Westminster being in the biblical studies and there was a whole political drama happening there. So I felt a little bit on the outside in, like we had a, we called it the Schleiermacher reading group, which is kind <laughs> of a reading group and kind of like a protest group. Um, so we we always I feel like I had one kind of one foot in and one foot out, one foot on the the edge and one foot in the middle. And yeah, so I think it was gradual. Um probably my own doing being insatiably be you know, insatiably curious and um a little bit of a troublemaker probably too. So 
uh, yeah, I think it was slow and gradual in that way. Like, okay, I went to Liberty, didn't really fit. So that kind of pushed me further out. I went to Westminster, didn't really fit. So that pushed me out where I was a pastor. It didn't really fit. That pushed me further out and kind of so on and so forth as it went. So I felt always a little bit of an outsider. So to, you know, dive into this just a little bit deeper, um, getting some of your bio here and your spiritual narrative and your history. Uh, this particular episode is going to kind of fit into a series that we're doing around the Bible. So this is perfect. And one of the things that John and I have found, and obviously you've found too, since it's the namesake of the podcast and a lot of the work you do with Pete Enns, um, is that the Bible is um, really going to be at the center of a lot of our either raveling or unraveling and journeying and constructing and deconstructing that we're doing. It's such a it's such a force. It's, it's so heavy and it's so important. And I was wondering if, if you wouldn't mind, um, kind of tell us your evolution with the Bible. So, you know, we got your, your story. I would be a little bit more interested on this episode. Um, and I think the listeners would be too. Um, so much of my spiritual history, I can just tell you about my relationship with the Bible. And I think that that's a, a good thing for us to talk about right now. So would you mind just kind of telling us about your evolution? Um, you know, from maybe a kid to sort of where you are now, just give us the kind of arc of you know how that unfolded. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's see. That's not that's not a trajectory I've I've laid out too too often, but I would say this. You know, it reminds me of uh, Peter Rollins gave me words to this at some point when he talked about um, taking the Bible too seriously, and I feel like that's I was a little too sincere as a kid. Mm. Um, so I was, I was very interested in the Bible. Um, I carried a Bible in my back pocket all the way through high school. I just, I knew I was one of those, I had sticky notes all throughout it to the point that the binding was falling out mm. and markers everywhere. And so I was extremely, I had probably 20 different versions that I was flipping through and the amplified version and blah, blah, blah. Um, so going into Liberty, um, just very, um, very curious, very sincere and genuine and passionate. And then learning Greek in, in college and then, and then Hebrew in seminary. And, uh, and so I think it was the seriousness that I, at which I took the Bible that really led to a lot of the questions that I had. And basically I think I took every tradition that I found myself a part of a little too seriously. Mm. And I, I think of it as that I sort of, I wanted the Bible to fit in so well, and I was so interested in defending it that I wanted no rock left unturned. Mm -hmm. I wanted every question answered. And so when I would go to the Bible for these answers, eventually I think of it as like going down a road that's paved and eventually it turned to dirt. And then eventually there was overgrowth. And then eventually I lost my way with it sort of, um, Oh, I'm taking it so seriously. I'm sort of going as far as I can. And then I, it's not making sense anymore. And uh, I think that would have been true in the various paths I would have gone, whether it was charismatic or in Presbyterian uh, theology or, um, yeah, kind of any any route I took. So that was that was really what it was, was just these don't make a lot of sense. And, of course, seminary would have been extremely, um, I would call it influential and helpful. Some people would call it detrimental and devastating. <laughs> uh, because I was introduced to just so many uh, amazing writers who clearly took the Bible extremely seriously, like John Levinson and Walter Brueggemann, uh, and these full, even Phyllis Tribble and some of these classic kind of feminist writers. And I just remember thinking, they are getting into the nitty-gritty of these texts in a way that is so life-giving to me. 
unfortunately, they're also terrifying because they're they're coming to conclusions that I'm not really comfortable with. But I loved the refreshing creativity and scholarship. Um, people who could just, uh, you know, you've talked to people where they can just throw out these narratives. And I especially appreciate some of the Jewish scholars we've had on the podcast who can just flip through the Bible in their minds and bring out specific passages like they're nothing. And um, so I always appreciated that. And so that really shaped a lot of it. But I would say, you know, I was really sensitive as a kid and I probably still am in some way, but Mm -hmm. it always hurt my feelings when my serious and and sincere attempt to study the Bible seriously led to a lot of um, people um, basically condemning me for not taking it seriously. Mm. So I was, I was always compromising with the world or, well, you could only come to that conclusion if you're ignorant or evil. Um, you couldn't come to it through serious study. That doesn't make any sense. And mm. that, I was, that was always just hurtful for me because it really was this curiosity to search and find uh, what, was, what was in the text that led this way. So one of the interesting things that you, that you brought up there that I, w- I would love to get your, your, your take on and and something that we talk about on the podcast a lot, which is just the 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 uh, role of language uh, when it comes to you know in, in interpreting scripture. Um, and so you talked about you mentioned you know your seminary um, uh, courses, you know where you're learning Greek and Hebrew, and and so you know these these are two very complex and nuanced languages. So as you started to learn these languages, how did that impact the way that you? viewed some of these uh, passages that you had probably read thousands of times as a child. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, one thing that just came to mind was actually in, while I was at Liberty and we were in Greek translating John three sixteen, mm-hmm. and it said, for God so loved the world, blah, blah, blah. And I probably shouldn't say blah, blah, blah. That seems irreverent, but, um, <laughs> we know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So, and so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, anyway, it struck me. It was it was one of those first kind of aha moments where I had always read it in English to say that for God had for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, meaning this is how much. So it was a quantity. This is how much. Like you could love the world less and do less, uh, but this is how much. Like this is kind of bigness. And I probably got that from Sunday school too. Like he loved the world so much. Totally. But in the in the Greek, the so isn't sort of quantity, it's not an exclamation. The Greek is actually just a, uh, the how, it's like an adverb. Mm-hmm. This is how God loved the world. He gave his only son. And for some reason that it was such a small nuance, but it just, it clicked for me in a way that I never heard that verse before. Mm. Um, and so it wasn't like, no, this, it, this act here actually defines what love is. Not like there's these lower forms and these higher forms. Um, but this is how love works, that he gave up something. There's this sort of kenosis or sacrifice, self-sacrifice built into the notion of love. And so anyway, that's just one small story. I think that, and then there were many, many more of these ahas um, throughout the text that uh, that were similar. Oh man, that's so good. That's And you know, just even John and I just listening to you do that uh, just now, and I, I have a feeling the listeners would probably be getting the same kind of reaction. It's that kind of freshness um, mm-hmm. that you were talking about earlier that does take you to new places and opens up new spaces within yourself, within the world, within the scripture that um, leads you on a journey. And I think that it's that kind of discovery that um, 
can start to make people uncomfortable. I think that um, a lot of people that listen to this show and yours, um, you know, are sort of our, uh, our Venn diagram audience, if you will, probably mm-hmm. um, have had experiences like uh, John and I both have, like it sounds like you have, where just through simple questioning um, or realization or wonder or awe or like, wow, they're met with suspicion, shaming, um, yeah, just that kind of, uh, that cold shoulder that like, whoa, you can't like, you're messing with my, you're messing with my structure, man. You got it. You can't do that. Like, don't mess with my structure. I wonder, uh, I know you've, you've done some episodes on this and you've talked about this before and it's obviously been a part of your journey. So how does that kind of realization when you dig into scripture and realize something new that sets you at odds with the people around you, um, what are some ways you've experienced that and, um, and how do you handle that? Yeah, that's a, um, so is that, I'm asking, let me ask a, sure. a follow-up question. Is that a sociological question? Is that a question of how, how do you handle it when you come to a realization of something that those around you haven't and how do you navigate those waters? Yeah, that'd be one way you could definitely take the question for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, because I ask that because that, you know, in my role as a pastor, especially in my later years was a lot of that. I, I taught a class when I was a pastor called for skeptics only. And, uh, basically we had a lot, it was a large church and we wanted to be a community church. So we had a lot of spouses who would come to the congregation. Even they weren't believers, but they thought it was a good family thing. They wanted their kids raised in the church, but they were, they were atheists and didn't really get much out of the service. So we decided to offer a class for them called for skeptics only where we took eight to 12 weeks in the spring and just kind of went through all the major oppositional questions and, you know, arguments and evidence-based claims for and against Christianity and just kind of had a conversation about it. And I think through that, I was kind of known as someone who could handle people's questions, which I really appreciated and valued. And uh, so I had a lot of people, we'd have like early morning breakfasts or late night diner talks and it was usually, hey, I think I might think that the Bible's not inerrant, or I think I'm okay with evolution, or I think I'm okay with the LGBTQ community being part of the church. Can you help me? Because if I say that out loud, my family's probably going to disown me, yeah. um, or I'm going to lose a lot of friends. And so I got to the point of just saying, yeah, there's a social cost for changing your beliefs. And I didn't, I didn't want to I didn't want to downplay that because it's very real and very serious. And I didn't, I didn't want to be a glib and sort of like, well, follow your heart. You have to sort of do what you know is right. right. I think is more complicated than that. Right. Um, so it's often like, Ooh, yeah, let's think through that. Um, because that's a challenge. And, uh, yeah. So both my personal history being, you know, I think a lot of my family growing up in Texas and others wouldn't, probably follow along with, with the way I've sort of, uh, my journey, my spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. So I've navigated a lot of those conversations myself and then, you know, helping other people to kind of navigate that, which is, it's really hard. It's probably the, the thing that my heart goes out to the most with, with people is how isolating it can feel to, to change your mind about the Bible. Cause life's too short to go it alone. Can't stay.
so I think that's one of the things that that Adam and I and, and so many other people love uh, so much about the podcast that you and Pete do together is that you guys just do such a tremendous job of taking uh, what can seem like a really daunting task of like really doing putting in the work. I think that's necessary uh, to really kind of um, start to even begin to understand what the Bible is trying to to speak to us, right? So um, you guys do such a tremendous job of really making that accessible and making it fun. So what are some of the things that you guys have learned along the way in terms of how to communicate that to other people who maybe are in that place in their journey where they're starting to freak out because they're kind of letting go of some of that certainty that comes with kind of that very literalist um, interpretation? Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I, I think, you know, one of the things that first comes to mind is giving people the space. I, I would think two things. I think giving people the space to go on that deconstructive journey is really important. I think it's a it's a necessary step along the journey. But I think one of the hardest things was reconstructing afterward and starting to put those pieces back together. Mm. Um, it's very safe and it feels really good to stay stay in critical mode Mm -hmm. uh, where you're just against everything. And I think, you know, being trained in philosophy, I think that's sort of, that was actually the goal of my field was be objective and criticize everything and everyone and never engage in a, like a heartfelt way. Um, Just stay at arm's length and criticize everything, Uh, which is why I was so drawn to the existentialists uh, who rejected that. But I, I, there's something very safe about that. And so I think it's easy to go on that journey and kind of gets, gets stuck there. Um, so it's been an interesting um, learning on how, where, when to push people and when to let people be where they need to be and validate the, however long it takes to stay in that painful place where you just hate Christianity or hate the church or uh, hate the Bible, don't want to pick it up, don't want to read it. And understanding that, I think for, for me at least, it was a five to seven year journey to really come out the other side of that. And, um, but yeah, I think the one thing that, that I've learned in the podcast journey is how to navigate those conversations, but also how difficult it is to build something new. I have a deep respect for people who are putting out creative theologies now and creative readings because it's tough. It's really easy to, you know, read Rachel Held Evans or whatever and critique her and say like, well, I don't agree with that, or I don't agree with this, but man, to write that stuff and to create new ways of being in the world, in, in a Christian, in the Christian world is tough. So. Well said. Yeah. Well said. I think, um, I think one of the things that I picked up on that it's just really interesting to hear you talk about all this, Jared, because you've just got such a unique, uh, journey, but it's, uh, in some ways so archetypal in, in a lot of ways with the philosophy and, you know, your path from like a, you know, an entrenched conservatism that was not only Southern Baptist, but charismatic and then Westminster and Liberty. And I mean, then getting to where you're at right now, I just, I'm really enjoying hearing you do this. And one of the things that I picked up on is that it seemed like, you know, early on in your journey, both, you know, philosophically and theologically, there was a, you know, like almost an anxiety to defend and get it right. And, and that had to do with maybe what faith meant, would I be, would I be on par with how you see your your journey if I said something like that? I'm trying to think. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe say a little more. Say it in a different way. Yeah. So like, just you know, 
early on just really wanting to be right uh you had mentioned and um you'd used the word control and um just every rock overturned like just a just like a really wanting to make sure you you get to all of it and um I relate to that that's that's kind of how I was too yeah yeah i definitely definitely relate to that i i think looking back you know a lot of it was probably sincere curiosity and desire to be, you know, godly or whatever that meant at the time. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, looking back a lot, just as much of it was my personality and I really like to be in control and I really like to be right. So mm-hmm. um, there's a, there's just as much of a shadow side to that, I think, as oh, there yeah. was a uh, positive. For sure. I wonder, um, do you think that a lot, a lot of times, um, especially in like the Western kind of evangelical denominations and things like that, that you were brought up in. I was brought up in a lot of our listeners were brought up in um, knowledge and, and getting it right is too closely equated with faith. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm working on a book right now. That's um, really about how we've conflated. Um, well, how we not how we've conflated, but basically how we made truth an idol. Mm. In, in our church, in our attempt to keep up with modernity and keep up with the Enlightenment, we didn't want to get left behind. And so we sort of hitched our wagon to truth. Um, and, and I don't, I, yeah, I think that we've conflated maybe truth and faith in a lot of ways. And I think that's led to when you can. then the goal then becomes knowledge and we know knowledge is power. We know power corrupts. There should becomes this sort of cascading uh, place where we can see where the institutions have gotten us today. Um, and I think that's, I think that's dangerous. And it kind of goes back to my personal story. I think, uh, I think my story could have easily ended with just kind of fitting into that mold because I really liked being in control and really liked being in power. And that could have been really dangerous for me, I think. Mm, yeah. I, I resonate with that kind of the second thing I want to tease out that I noticed is now just, you know, consuming a lot of your work and even just talking to you now, I don't get the impression at all that there's any anxiety or, or need to control driving anything you're, that you're doing. It, it, it honestly sounds a lot more like joy. It sounds like you're having fun. It sounds like uh, a true love for whatever it is that you discover. And there's a, a real piece that I pick up on in, um, in kind of where you are and how you talk about these kinds of things. Uh, I wonder if you've noticed that in yourself. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The last three or four years, I mean, I think from the vote, very practical, which is it's amazing how freeing it can be when your paycheck doesn't depend on your beliefs. Um, <laughs> That's so, yeah. Uh, that can be, that can be real freeing. But yeah, secondly, um, I had to come to this place because I think early on I realized, I thought that there maybe was, um, gold at the end of the rainbow. And at some point I realized there's no end to the rabbit hole Mm. and I have to be okay with the fact that I'm never going to get anywhere in particular. Um, And I really love that metaphor that uh, Brueggemann uses in journey to the common good that, you know, on the one hand we have Egypt, uh, which is a place of oppression. And on the other hand, we have a place, uh, the Jerusalem, which is religious oppression. So we have pagan oppression and we have religious oppression, and they're both oppressive. And in between, we have the God of the desert, um, the one who leads the Israelites in the wilderness. And that's the most free Israel's ever been. Um, and so just having to 
kind of come to that grips, which is why actually our, our youngest kid, um, his name is Exodus. And so just kind of coming to peace with the fact that we're just, we're on the journey and that I've been able to disconnect my spiritual life from my mental ascent, my beliefs and say, you know what? I, I was, I was made curious and I can go wherever that leads me. So I can entertain a thought without feeling bad about that, no matter what it is. And that doesn't affect the fact that my, my faith is really built around. Um, I often say like, when someone says, well, what do you actually believe? I say, well, I don't know. Like ask my wife, ask my kids, ask my friends, like they're probably going to be able to tell you better what I believe than, than me. I'll just make it sound good. I'll, I'll tell you what I think I believe. Um, and so I really uh, kind of have rooted myself in those traditions and practices, which my wife is really helpful in. And, uh, and that's freed me a lot to kind of pursue these uh, curiosities that I have. Mm. Uh, that's so really good. well put. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I, I kind of want to stay in this theme here, and, but uh, go back to something that you said earlier. Um, you, you mentioned that when you were younger, and I think a lot of people listening can uh, identify with this, this idea that as you uh, started to entertain your curiosity and, and dig in a little deeper um, and, and in your quest to find truth, as you put it, um, you had people who responded neg- negatively to, to that, you know, uh, either you're, you're evil or just, just trust, you know, what you've been told and that, and that sort of thing. And this, and this is the sort of thing that still happens now. So you talk about oppression, that's, you know, that's definitely very uh, oppressive, you know, in in terms of uh, not allowing uh, folks to, to ask questions or to dig deeper. So what do you, what do you say to, to folks, you know, the younger version of yourself that's wandering around out there today? So good, John. To my, to the, yeah, to my younger version of myself, I, one, I think I always want to point out that you're not alone and that's more true now, I think, than ever. And that's been something, a real blessing that we didn't really anticipate with the podcast is uh, many, many pastors reaching out saying, hey, we're the kind of congregation we hope uh, that the normal people who listen to your podcast would be welcome at. And, and so there's just a lot more conversations going on um, around that. And secondly, I would say, to, to my, particularly to my younger self, is uh, it's okay not to know the answers. Like you don't have to be an asshole and you don't have to. Right. Because uh, that was what it would be is like I didn't like to feel uh, insecure. And so I could, I could just argue my way. Um, into sort of convincing someone at least that I may not be right, but at least I'm not dumb. And I think I was very afraid of feeling dumb. And, uh, and yeah, so, you know, not being afraid of that, that that's, that's part of the journey and part of letting go is, uh, is to, to ask for help, to be not, to not need to know all the answers, to just be part of the, part of the, the group, um, part of the journey and part of the people who were, who are searching and, and, and giving people that grace too, that most of the people who are going to react negatively to you, they're on their own journey. Um, and they're probably reacting in some ways out of that same insecurity that you want to defend yourself out of. So. Yeah. One, one of the things that, um, <clears throat> that I found uh, very interesting also, uh, just kind of engaging with, you know, with the people who, who listen to our podcast as well as the, you know, we, we, we engage with people who are all over the spectrum, you know, are all over the, the path on their, you know, particular journeys, um, as it were. And one of the things that I found interesting is that uh, folks who we encounter who uh, would probably self-identify as maybe atheists, 
um, seem to be arguing against a version of Christianity that I wouldn't even agree with. Almost like a, a straw man argument, you know, where they're uh, raging against kind of this caricature of of the faith. Um, and so, what what do you say to folks who, out there who are like, I just can't be religious because there's all this, for example, um, violence in the Old Testament. Yeah, I mean, I just think that's not, well, it depends on who, it depends on how close I am to those people. But if they were good friends of mine, I'd say, well, you're just not being imaginative enough. You know, um, it's funny because I had, um, I just had a conversation with someone who they're like a, a pretty big name youth pastor and worship pastor at a church, like a large church. And they sort of came again, these midnight meetings that I have with people who <laughs> want to keep it on the, the hush hush under the cover. And they were like, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I said, I said, uh, yeah, let's have a call. We, we, we got on zoom and had a, had a bit of a video conference and he was, he was genuinely wanting me. He, he, he asked me, you know, well, why are you still a Christian? Like you have all these questions and how, how can you still be a Christian? Mm. And I said something that I could tell immediately was the most unsatisfying answer he was expecting, um, which was, well, cause I choose to be. And he didn't like that one bit. Um, and I think that's, you know, with my, with my, with my atheist friends who a lot of times are like, well, why are you a Christian? Cause nine times out of 10, I'll agree with whatever they're saying. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't believe that either. Like you guys are saying, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So, well, but doesn't that mean, doesn't A plus B equals C? Like, doesn't that mean you can't be a Christian? I'm like, no, it doesn't, that doesn't mean that at all. I, I'm still a Christian. Like how? Well, cause I, cause I want to be, what do you mean? How? Cause that's a choice. Um, and I still, I think there is that sense of, uh, I'm a big Kierkegaard fan. And so for me, I spent a lot of years coming into this, like truth is subjectivity, um, and the, the importance of the individual before the absolute and choice. And, and so that for me, I have to realize that not a lot of people are, I wouldn't say not a lot of people, not a lot of people I engage with are there. And so for me to say that's pretty jarring and I have to sort of walk them along for a while before they kind of even understand what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, that's usually, that's usually what, you know, with atheists or agnostics, they point all these things out to me. I'm like, yeah. And why is that a necessary conclusion? I don't understand. So. Well, what's interesting about that too, is that the way that they're approaching it with that A plus B must equal C. And, you know, if this is the way it is, then how could you be a Christian is really kind of the same thing that a lot of us have grown out of with the fundamentalist approach. It's very rigid, very linear, like you said, not not very imaginative, and it doesn't take into account a lot of the mysterious, um, more like you said, existential, um, mystical things that are deep within the tradition, not separable from the tradition, but also aren't logical. They don't make sense. Like unconditional love doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. I do, you know, I think I've gotten in trouble sometimes online because I, I like to draw these uh, analogies and connections between fundamentalists and what I call like the scientism advocates mm-hmm. and who are just fundamentalists for science. Right. And uh, yeah, and I feel like they're they're sort of at that higher level of structure. Structurally, they have the same belief system or at least the same belief set, um, have posture of belief. And, and for me, I'm more interested in a different posture of belief than I am the different content of those beliefs. Um, yeah. Tell us just a little bit more about that when you say posture of belief. 
if you could tease that out just a little bit. <sighs> nope, I can't. Oh, dang it. <laughs> I'll just have to edit uh, that um, out then. Bad question, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, really it's, I, I just, it, it's hard because I, I think in, in these, uh, think in these, in these word pictures, but I think of what we believe and how we believe. So I think of form and content. I think of structure, like container, and what we put in the container. Mm-hmm. And I think for so long, our Christianity was just about what you put in the container. It's just the the formulas and the beliefs and the words that come out of your mouth and the mental ascent that comes into your mind and the the softer things, the things around that, what I would call like the containers or the form of our belief, the posture of our belief. How are we orienting ourselves toward the world um, has not, was never a part of the equation. And so I think of the, the content, um, can be wildly different. And I, the, you know, one example I think of is when I was a pastor, one of these spouses who was an atheist, who was in my class, we got to be like really close friends and we'd have lunch like once a month. And most of our lunches would bemoan the fact that we were actually closer in how we lived our lives than our respective tribes. He would rant against the atheists and I would rant against the Christians and it was a good time had by all. And that's kind of what I mean by, you know, with the posture of our belief, the the way we navigate the world, the things that we were interested in, compassion and love and grace and wisdom and developing in maturity uh, as human beings, were we were very much in a line on that, even though our particular tribe that had the same beliefs as us, they... We, we didn't find ourselves in, in as much alignment with them. Mm. That's good, man. Thank you. So um, obviously this is going to be part of our scripture series. So um, I thought it'd be fun to talk about uh, some different aspects of, uh, let's start with the New Testament because you're up first, Jared. So your podcast will be number one in the series. So talking about um, like the New Testament, what are some of the things that you encounter? Because it's not often we get somebody who is a uh, who literally just studies the Bible um, and has the the credentials. It's usually just Adam and I, um, you know, trying to sound like we know what we're talking about. So, um, <laughs> so what are some of the common things that you run into that people just um, have issue with uh, that maybe you could um, talk about a little bit in the New Testament? Yeah. So, um, one example that comes to mind is, you know, we talk about the gospels and one of the biggest issues that people have with it is, you know, like, look, we know Mark is, is supposed to be the oldest, uh, one written. Um, and then we have, uh, Luke and Matthew that borrow heavily from Mark. And then we have John that was the last one written and it's way different than the other three, just in the style in which it was written. And, um, completely different narratives that you, that you see there. So what do you say to people who are like really trying to dive into like, for example, the gospels and trying to work their way through that? Yeah. Well, you don't need any credentials. Look at that. You spelled it out just perfectly. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I think the, yeah, the, the gospels are a great example. And once you can, I think once you can get to the fact that if you can just say, well, this is the Bible we have. And instead of saying, um, maybe there are, you know, when I was in first in seminary, you'd read these writers who were basically made the assumption that the biblical writers were kind of idiots. And so whenever they would see, for instance, like there's differences in the gospels, it was like, well, aren't these guys are dumb. Like, why would you put books together that are so different whenever it's clear 
that that couldn't have happened the same way. Like they're different, conflicting, contradictory accounts. And, and so again, it comes back to that posture of belief. Like on the flip side, I kept reading more and more of these people who were fascinated and fell in love with the discrepancies because they gave nuance and texture to what that author was trying to get at. And a great example of this is, you know, Luke has uh, a bent toward the a poor and the, the oppressed. So in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's Matthew's version. Well, in Luke, in the Sermon on the Plain, he just says, blessed are the poor. He leaves off the in spirit. Um, and it's like, oh, well, which was it? I think that that's the most boring and uninteresting question. Which was it? What did Jesus actually say? Was it poor in spirit or was it blessed are the poor? Well, you're missing the whole point of Luke's gospel if that's the question you're asking. The question is, what point is Luke trying to make about the kingdom of God whenever he says, blessed are the poor? Uh, especially when you read it in the context of the rest of, of his gospel and how he crafts the narrative. Um, so I think whenever you can get over those questions of historicity, uh, and there are problems, and I, I appreciate scholars who focus on those. I think they're really important to work through. But by and large, for the average person, it's more interesting to say, why is it that we have the Bible we have and dig into possible reasons why these writers would have shaped it in the way that they would have. Fear the passage on when it's hard to tell heaven from hell from the feelings I felt. Earthy faith flows through my veins and I don't Yeah, I think I think the interesting um, the, the interesting follow up to that is you know um, one of my dad's seminary professors had this mantra you know context is king, and so for me it's always it, the context has always been the fascinating uh, part of it you know so why would they have phrased it in that particular way to the audience to which they were speaking you know I think there's that's the more interesting question versus um, you know like you said like why are the these differences here. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I think there's a two a two way street that I think is important because too often maybe we read it one way, which is context is king, and and so to find the historical situatedness of where they were is really great. Um, but then there's a second reading, which is kind of what I was getting to at the beginning: this refreshing creative reading that can only come out of a deep respect and thoroughgoing intimacy with the text. Um, that I think is really important. I'm thinking of writers like, um, so, so writers like John Levinson would be excellent examples of that first kind of reading where they just get really into the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty, I mean, down to the jot and tittle literally of the text and, and know those contexts so well. And then you have people who take that knowledge and create these beautiful worlds that apply to ours. Like I'm thinking Will Gaffney on womanist, interpretation and uh, even a little bit of uh, Brueggemann, but definitely like a Richard Rohr who, you know, we would, we would, we would have our arguments with Richard Rohr, like, well, you're kind of reading into the Bible. That's not, if, if you're taking the context, literally like that's not really what's going on. And I think Richard would say, yeah, you're right. And I kind of don't care. So um, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> so I think there's the, I think those are both really important and can both be beautiful in their own way, but they both take hard work and uh, it's a skill. It's a craft. It's an art. 
um, that takes a lot. And I think there's something beautiful just even in that of dedicating years of one's life to this craft um, and what can come out of that. That that brings me to a question that I wanted to make sure I got in here somewhere and you just kind of touched on it. So um, I just keep thinking of all these listeners and, you know, like John, John referenced earlier, like looking back at our, our previous selves walking around out there and, you know, just coming into deconstruction, just coming into some kind of uh, some kind of an un, un, unraveling or, you know, something going on. Um, but still, you know, the Bible will never cease to be important for anybody that's had a strong relationship with it. It will continue to define you and be in your life, whether, you know, it's just haunting you from the shelf or, you know, it's something that you're just, you know, always trying to to manage in in some way, shape or form. So, I've got really a two-part question. So, uh, in light of that, uh, how do you how do you start to encourage people? Because I know this is something you're particularly good at, and and you and Pete together are particularly good at. How do you start to encourage people to overcome, or ways to o- that we can overcome the anxiety um, that we've all kind of been steeped in in certain ways of looking at the Bible as something to get right, quote unquote, or correct or to find some degree of um, established certainty from it. Uh, how do we kind of move from that? And we know that that's not where we want to be anymore, but that, that anxiety is still there and move into some of the other ways that you're talking about having a relationship with scripture. Cause I think that's a difficult transition transition for a lot of us. That gear gets stuck. Absolutely. I think that's a really well put. Um, yeah, that was a, a good question. Um, the first thing I would say is don't be afraid to just put the Bible down and don't look at it and don't read it for an extended period of time. Uh, and that was really important to me, which unfortunately I had to do that when I was still a pastor. So that was, that was difficult Yikes. preaching sermons Yikes. when you're not really reading the Bible anymore. But what I was frustrated by was, um, and this happens a lot in the different areas of, of my life where we, we want to make a change, but the patterns of behavior are so deeply rooted that even if we tried, you know, one of the reasons I didn't become a pastor after I left my sort of mega church position was I thought about starting a church and I thought, well, I would never want to start a mega church or have that model. Um, and I think it's, you know, fine for some, it wasn't for me. But I know, because that's the only thing I've been trained in, that's what I would start. Mm-hmm. So even if my intention is not, it's, it's baked into my training. It's, it's sort of muscle memory. And I think we do that with the Bible, where we just think we can just switch a, flip a switch and have a different reading strategy. And for me, I realized that's never going to work, because every time I pick the Bible up and try to do something new with it, the same old patterns just crept back in. So... I had to just set it down for a few years so my brain could kind of unlearn these patterns and just let it lay dormant. Um, and in that meantime, I spent a lot of time reading folks who, uh, who could give me a new vision. So give me new muscle memory. I had to watch new training videos and those would be, uh, you know, any number of authors that you guys have had on. And that's what I, one of the things I love about these podcasts is it gives some fresh voice to what, where can I go? Um, and so spending some time reading how they, you know, get a new mentor um, for how to read, how to read scripture in these new and creative ways, and then go back later, maybe years later and try to pick it back up again in that, 
in that new way. The second thing I would say is if, if you, there's an anxiety about getting the Bible right, I think I would go deeper and ask the question around what are your views of God and how God sees you? What are your views of um, sin and salvation and some of these deeper concepts that, uh, you know, I think Jonathan Merritt maybe on a previous episode of yours talked about, like those words have huge concepts behind them. And, and so how do we start to become aware and reflect on all that that means for us? And for, for some people that's in therapy, like that's a professional setting to do that. And for other people, you know, friends or even alone, but I think starting to wrestle with that because our reading strategy with the Bible tends to be a tip of the iceberg um, with a lot going underneath. Um, one of the things I've heard you say previously that I, I really appreciate it, and I'd love for you to talk about the, you know, why this is important, but um, I've heard you say that you know, when you sit down and, and you sit down to, to read the Bible, that oftentimes that you surround yourself with different translations. And even I've heard you say that um, you've used uh, the, the Jewish translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Um, talk about why that's important and, and why that's helpful. Yeah, I, I still, I tend to read the JPS. It's the Jewish Publication Society version of the Old Testament. Um, uh, frankly, because I think Jews do a lot of that scholarship better than we do. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's important because, well, for a few reasons. One, I think we don't, we stop reading slowly and intentionally when it becomes too familiar. So new translations speak just differently um, and ca- have us catch things that we maybe didn't notice before. But secondly, I mean, every, every translation is an interpretation. Um, translation is interpretation. So behind every English translation, you have a team of people who are making conscious decisions about how to translate certain words. And, and there are a lot of words that are ambiguous, especially in the Old Testament. Um, there's a, a, a boatload of uh, what we call hapax legomena, so the w- words that only occur one time. And so there's not a lot of context to go on. And so we do our best, uh, but but there's teams of people who would translate things in different ways. And so it's important, I think, to to see those uh, differences. Sort of if we're taking a lot of our belief system from this text, I think we can take uh, take some time to see how these teams of people are making decisions for us on the back end. Oh man, I love I love that. I when when I had heard you say that, I was um, I, I've been reading a ton of um, just the Jewish perspective on the Old Testament recently, and just just having my mind blown. Um, just seeing a different perspective, you know, on a text that I've read uh, you know a million times before. So you know, guys like Rabbi Wolpe and and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and and Art Green and guys like that. Just it's um, I think it's it's funny to think that. Um, why wouldn't we read Jewish texts on the book that they wrote? You know, <laughs> like it, it's, it's just funny that people just don't even consider that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, their insights are, it, read some Jewish authors and then like it's, it's, you'll quickly find that what we thought was kind of the only way to think about something, we are woefully mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what a great thing that is. <laughs> yeah. It's such a great thing. Um, yeah, you know what? I, I had one more question, but I think we already answered it, but, uh, you know, I'll just, I'll kind of frame it up a little bit differently. So, um, other than listening to the Bible for normal people, what are some other, what are some other, uh, things that people can do to just kind of 
reinvigorate themselves around uh, this daunting book? No, that that's really all you need to do is just listen to the... I agree. You can just end <laughs> it right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, again, in, in all honesty, I think um, from a lot of people I've heard, you know, utilizing resources like your podcast here or the Bible for Normal People, not just for the content here, but I think even even just hearing, going back to what I've said in the last half hour, I've probably dropped, you know, seven or eight different authors. Like, take those... I, I appreciate when people write and say, hey, you had, you know, Will Gaffney on and I picked up a uh, woman as Midrash and that book changed my life. Like that was really helpful. So, you know, utilize we're I, I think we're just messengers on the podcast. We really want to just bring that scholarship to light and to give all as many voices to the text as we can um, that are really smart and taking it very seriously. So, you know, take advantage of when people are on this podcast or other podcasts and name authors and books, you know, write them down, go to the library, order them on Amazon and just uh, be open-minded about how that might change, um, how that might change what you're thinking. And uh, that that I, I could say it sounds simplistic, but don't ask or underestimate the power of reflection. To just as you're reading, think how is this changing? How is this different than how I would have thought about it previously? Um, and there's just there's a lot of good stuff out there. Absolutely, so good, man. So what's your favorite Bible verse? I'm kidding. <laughs> what's your life verse? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my life verse. Uh, you know what? I, I don't remember what it was, but it, when I was in college, my favorite thing to do was, and I can't remember the verse now, but I used to write, because you know, whenever you're in college, you go to like a million weddings, or at least if you're a Christian college. Yeah. Um, everyone's getting married when they're like 21. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I went to a lot of weddings, and anytime they had like a thing to sign, you know, they had those... I guess maybe when I got married in the early 2000s, they had these uh, things where they had a picture and everyone oh, yeah. signed a picture frame. And I would always put in there, uh, I think it's Genesis 3. What is it? But it, basically it's the passage that says, and the two were naked and we're not ashamed. Um, <laughs> so that was like my life verse for like four years. The two were naked and we're not ashamed. That's amazing. <laughs> I love it, man. <laughs> that is so great. Well, we, we can't appreciate you coming on the show enough. Uh, we, we've been wanting to do this for a while, I know. And, and so I'm thankful that we're, we're able to get you on and, and have you be one of the last episodes in uh, 2018. Um, so before we let you go, though, uh, obviously, we mentioned uh, your amazing podcast, so um, you know people who haven't heard that need to go and check it out. Uh, we'll, we'll put all those links in the show notes. Uh, where else can people go to stay on top of, of what you're up to? Uh, well, for me personally, you can uh, find me on Twitter at jbiasbyas and on Facebook. Um, Jared Bias is a pretty unique name, so you can usually just Google that. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much where where I am right now, uh, write occasionally on the Bible for normal um, with Pete and yeah, other than that, the podcast. Awesome. Thank would you, you so uh, much. would you just do us a favor and not mention it to Pete that you were on here? He's going to get super jealous, obviously. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, he will, he will hear it cause he listens to every episode. I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> dang it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we again, we just appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, I mean, there's there's a ton of academics out there, um, and and you know they they tend to be more on the stuffy side. So it's always nice when you have uh, you know academics out there who are who are doing brilliant work and um, make it really fun. And you guys are both have a great sense of humor, so we we appreciate um, everything you guys are doing. Yeah, seriously, thanks for what you do, man. It's a big deal. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank All you. Right, we'll talk to you later. 
All right.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.